Welcome back. Uh, this is the Preacher and the Atheist podcast. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the eponymous atheist. And with me, as always, is Gene, the eponymous preacher. How are you doing, Gene? I'm great, Ben. Ooh, it's been a while since we've been doing... It's been a while. Uh, we've been, been on a little bit of a hiatus, been a little busy, starting school, uh, just moved into a house, lots going on. And right. uh, we're getting right back into it. And we're looking forward to uh, discussing like the, the weekly biblical passages and the weekly stories and seeing what we can learn to, you know, just better ourselves. So uh, today we are going to be uh, right back into Amos. It's like we just left off. It's like, I think that was what we were discussing last time. Right. We were, we were right. back in Amos. Uh, then we're going to jump into Timothy and then eventually end with the gospel according to Luke. So we're going to start off in Amos. And here we have uh, Amos the prophet basically setting us up as... Uh, as he just describes people who are just living this lavish lifestyle, you know, alas for those who lie on beds of ivory, which doesn't sound very comfortable to me. Um, they, <laughs> well, he just didn't mention the mattress. Oh, <laughs> he's just talking about the frame. <laughs> oh, really? So, so, so it, it, it's expensive, and it's not even the the part you st- you're staying on. <laughs> right, yeah, there we right, go. It could right. be, it could be made from anything. Right, right. Uh, and then you know they sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. Uh, although that is what King David did. He was an uh, improviser on instruments of music. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they drink wine from bowls, which I haven't tried since undergrad. And <laughs> and so like it's just this big setup. I like I as I was reading this, this almost to me this almost sounds like uh, like cartoonish in the way it's setting up these rich people uh, that are part of the uh, the two tribes, correct? Uh, yes, I mean, he's uh, Amos, if you notice in the first half of the verse that we have that opens the passage, he says, alas, for those who are at ease in Zion. So he's talking about, that's Zion, of course, is another name for Jerusalem. Um, and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. And for those who feel secure, and this, you know, this, these are two lines of poetry, uh, on Mount Samaria, while Samaria is in the north. And so he's talking about the kingdom of Israel there. Now, later he's going to use a term, Joseph, which is going to be his, his uh, term for the unified, the two of them together. Um, but yeah, he's talking about the whole kit and caboodle. It, nobody is escaping uh, his attention in this one. Right. And his issue with them is uh, they're not concerned over yeah. the ruin of Joseph, which is essentially... The, uh, uh, the 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 parts of Jerusalem that are not going so well. So the, the poor, the people who are struggling, the like you could even call it the working class. Or well, he's he's uh, he's talking about uh, his society. Their society is going downhill, and he can see it as all prophets do. Um, and they're not concerned about it. I mean, these, this is a typical example of what we would call today the idle rich. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't need to do anything because they have their security. That's what those beds of ivory uh, get them. And when you can sing the songs on the harp, and you'll notice he compares it like uh, King David did. Well, well, it says, like David. Well, David was a king. And these folks are living like they are kings and queens, but they're not. And yeah, that, they, they're still expected to contribute to society in some exa- way. They're part of it, exactly. You know, and, and they're not doing their part. Or they think uh, that their part has become 
simply to be the idle rich, to lie on their uh, beds and their couches and to drink wine from bowls and sort of set an example of, of um, you know, what this might be sort of the, the, uh, the uh, prosperity goal, the prosperity um, outlook. Look what you can achieve or look what can happen to you if you make enough money, if you are su su successful enough, you can live like we are. And so they, they're setting themselves up as, ex as examples, not at all aware of the fact that much of their wealth, in fact, everything that they have in the eyes of the prophet, uh, comes from God and is not their own doing. It's, it's a, it's a fake prosperity it's, well it's it's a it's a, it's a, a thin prosperity i mean oh yeah it's it's real enough oh yeah 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 those ivory beds are are real enough but they're easily broken they're easily shattered and he's going to say that later in the passage because he's going to say that they're going to be the first ones who are going to suffer right they're the ones that are going to be sent out into exile and it, it's not so much that it's just them that's going to be gone right um, and, and I like this because it's it's the revelry of them yes. are going is going to go. So it's this is this idea that of the idle rich are going to go and what's going to take its place is going to be more of a, uh, of, a of a like almost like a philanthropic uh, rich that it will actually contribute to. Uh, well, we hope. Well, you would hope. Yeah, you hope. But but Amos doesn't he doesn't get that far. You know, in his prophecy, it's just bad. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. everybody's going to be headed out, and um, you know, he's he's a prophet uh, forecasting the exile, which is going to happen about I don't know about a hundred about two hundred years after he he prophesies, mm. which is probably the reason that his prophecies were preserved because they actually did come true mm -hmm. eventually. So this revelry uh, of the loungers passing away, actually, like in more recent history, though, there, there is some examples of, you know, the, 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 the top, uh, the, the top part of society or like the richest part of society being essentially exiled. So French revolution, Russian revolution, exactly. and at least for a little bit, um, in the French revolution, when, you know, more democratic ideas started coming in and, you know, people started, you know, caring about their neighbor, happened in Russia too, slightly different way, uh, you can say what you want about the communist revolution, it's, you know, historically it didn't turn out so great, Yeah. but uh, the initial idea was more looking out for the common person, that's what really built that. Uh, you got two ways to do this, Ben, you can do it the easy way, you can do it the hard way, we're talking about change, we're talking about social change, um, and... Amos is saying that his society needs to change, and it needs to change internally with the people who have the wealth and the power. Now, if they change it voluntarily, and they say, you know what, we really need to get, uh, we need to behave uh, more responsibly, we need to use our wealth and our privilege and our um, power in more responsible ways than simply these self-indulgent ways that that we've been using up to this point. Okay. Wonder what wonder what that would take. Yeah, well, you know, and there's a there's a great question. You know, we may get some of uh, well, we might a, get to that a, later. A partial answer, right? Later in one of the other, <laughs> in one of the other readings, um, but that would be the the less destructive way, uh, and and that also might mean, in Amos's historic context that Israel's life might go on because she would begin to, probably shouldn't say she, but Israel would uh, begin to interact with surrounding powers in a more responsible way. 
but they're not going to do that. And so uh, he is predicting the end. That that, that self-absorption is so entrenched that it's going to have to be broken from the outside. Right. And that's always destructive. Because if you're living a life like that, why would you ever want to be told that you're doing something wrong? Exactly. And or, or why would you want to respond to someone who says, you know, we all really need to sacrifice here. Now, that can get to be a tricky argument. Um, we all need to sacrifice. And so what that usually means is, the wealthy, powerful people are saying to the people who aren't so wealthy and powerful, you need to sacrifice, and we'll sacrifice a little bit, but you're going to have to sacrifice a little bit too. Well, that little bit for a poor person is a whole lot. That's not a little bit. Right. It's, 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 it's a percentage game, frankly, because it's yeah. like if everybody has to give up, you know, this is like the, 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 the flat tax argument you hear a lot, uh, where, you know, if everybody's asked to give 20%, you know, if you're making $30,000 a year, you give you know, three thousand dollars, but if you're making three million a year, you're given three hundred thousand. Yeah. I, but, but I think that, my math is right there. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. And uh, the the problem with that argument is that well, one of the problems with that argument is that that measures success only in terms of dollars. Right, and that prosperity. If, that if you get X number of dollars, which equals a percentage from this person who's making that kind of money. And the comparable percentage, you know, X, the X number of dollars from this person that equals the same percentage, we consider that a success. The problem is that can uh, perpetuate the injustice because a person who's making millions and millions and millions of dollars is not going to miss $300,000. Right. Because even proportion, like it, it might sound like it's the same proportion, but. But the like, same proportion doesn't have the same impact. Correct. Because that $3,000 means a lot more to somebody exactly. making $30,000. And that is where, and you know, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about our contemporary situation, but that's where um, our contemporary discussion is really quite thin. We're not asking that question, or, or, or we're not using the metric of impact to... Uh, determine success or what right. constitutes successful economic policy. Well, this, this even leads to the Timothy a bit, okay. uh, just the way it opens up, because it, it's not suggesting that, you know, if somebody just happens to be rich, they or they've earned their riches and they've uh, they, they've done good their entire life. That's not necessary. That's not necessarily a, uh, like a like a like an ungodly thing. In fact, Timothy uh, opens this Timothy passage, uh, chapter six, verse six. Uh, first, says, of first, course. First Timothy. So, yeah. First Timothy. That's right. Yeah. I, forgot, I forgot there yeah, were two. There are two of them, yeah. All right. Uh, so, of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. So, yeah. contentment, you know, being another phrase for yeah. that uh, that prosperity. And, and, and being satisfied yeah. with your life. You know, not, not always wanting more, not wanting the newest, not wanting the f a faster model, not, you know, that this kind of thing that I see with, with phones today, where I see these ads that, you know, first it was G3, now it's got to be G4, and, you know, then it just keeps going up and up and up, you know, faster, louder, you know. Well, you know, there's actually thing. quite a bit of uh, economic prosperity that can be associated with the, was it, it's, uh, what, what, like G5 now or something? Yeah, wherever we are, yeah. Um, the question is, do you need that? You know, the, the, and, and, and what he's talking about in that epistle is the difference between needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
Contentment means that those things line up, that you want what you need, um, and you don't want what you, you you don't need what you want. You know that's 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 what he's talking about with with contentment. But you're right; he's not saying that being rich is bad. If you if you look further on, and, and um, you can tell me what the verse is. Uh, I guess it's verse ten. It's not. It's not money. It's the love of money. Exactly. Um, and that's the problem. When you love the money instead of the stuff that the money can do for others, that's the problem. Right. It's, it's that hoarding of wealth. So when people talk about you know, wealth inequality and they say that you know, the, the 10 richest people in the United States have more money than like the, the – I forget what the exact number is. So you know, don't, don't at right. me on Twitter about right. all the those, specifics of this. All but those it, quintiles. It, yeah, it's, it's, but it's, it's something ridiculous right. where right. You know, right. like the top – the 10 richest people have as much money as the bottom half of the United States. Like yeah. that yeah. – and then that's not even – and it's even worse in places like China. It's even worse in like other kinds of uh, – like what was it? Uh, what are they? Like growing countries or industrializing yeah. countries yeah. or whatever yeah. the, the term is. So that 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 idea that you know just the fact that you're the, the the fact that you're rich is not the the problem it's that you're rich and all you're concerned with is being richer. Right, it's the money that you love rather than the stuff for good that the money can do. That's the problem. And that's what Timothy's talk sorry first Timothy is I'm assuming it's the same Timothy. Um, well, it's Paul. You know, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, these are two letters that you know are attributed to Paul. Yeah, All right. Yeah. But like, it, but the, this the, in uh, verse seventeen, command them not to be haughty yeah. or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, not what riches can potentially do, uh, but what what you have can actually do. Well, it's it's related to the Amos passage, in the sense of many people think that wealth will insulate them from the vicissitudes of life, and it doesn't. Um, you know, I, I, the example that always comes to mind when people think that wealth will, that they can buy their way out of problems, um, the, the example that always comes to my mind is um, Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. If there was ever a human being whose money should have been able to keep him from dying, it was Steve Jobs. Yeah. And all the money in the world, and he had a lot of it, couldn't buy him more than a few years of his life once that diagnosis was there. It reminds me of a, of a T-shirt that I saw when I was a kid, and I didn't really understand it. And it, was, and it was something that I think my dad's friend was wearing at a pool hall or something. It was like one of those kind of, you know, working-class, smoke-filled place. And it was, uh, he who dies with the most toys dies. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, 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 right. And, and, and as a 10 year old, and it, don't worry, I wasn't like in danger or anything. My, my dad didn't, would never take me into a place like that. Um, but I just remember thinking like, I, I have no idea what that means as like a 10 year old. Right. Uh, and, but then I, again, then you come to some realization like 15 years later and then it's like that memory just kind of sticks with you or just the way you felt. Cause it goes from like confusion to, uh, it goes from confusion to realization and that alone is enough to have you remember it. So right. the, but like that, that, that idea that you, it's like, you can't take it with you. Correct. You know, I mean, we got all sorts of aphorisms about mm -hmm. that. You know, there aren't any pockets and shrouds and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 
working on the book of Job for another class, and one of the things that Job says is, he, you know, he says, I didn't bring anything into this world, and I'm not going to take anything out of it. And that's absolutely right. Well, um, that's what it says in uh, the seventh verse, for we brought nothing into uh-huh. the world so that we can take nothing out of it. Now it's referencing the book of Job. Mm-hmm. Um, because Job says that. Um, now, Job is... In, in Well, let's not get off on Job because uh, that's a different book and a different point. But the overall point is the same. It's not what you... It, it's, it's not wealth. It's what you do with wealth. Uh, and I've known plenty of wealthy people who did a great deal of good um, with their wealth, uh, in part because in our society, as in most societies, wealth also uh, goes hand in hand with power. And it's, it's a, it's an ext- I don't know of any societies, in fact, where wealth doesn't, uh, isn't accompanied by power. Right, that's a, no, there isn't, that's a real, uh, that, that's one of the things that Karl Marx was, was writing about way back in the day. Because it, it, the issue is not that those two things are related, it's, it's that when the, that relationship is so strong, nobody else can break into it. And that's why if you want people to have power, people need money. And mm-hmm. that's where we get into the whole business about you know distribution of wealth and redistribution of wealth and all that kind of stuff. Right. And and, and but one of the issues that I, I often have is with um, with with philanthropy in general is sometimes people are giving money and are trying to do things that they have no expertise in. You know, as as an education scholar and advocate and a public education advocate, I see all the time these rich business people coming in and trying to take over schools, trying to run schools like businesses, trying to provide uh, materials but no training or, um, or, or, or like curriculum to go along with the new materials uh, and, and expecting positive outcomes. So, uh, and, you know, there is a, a saying that, that I was exposed to a few years ago called uh, we have to learn to work smarter and not just harder. And that's an example of um, saying, uh, that's an example of not repudiating people trying to do good with their money, but rather um, someone who's got that expertise, such as yourself, uh, trying to find a way to influence how that money might be more profitably and less wastefully used. So does that mean that you become a member of a board of a charity, you know, of, a, of a philanthropic organization? Does it mean that you become uh, an advisor to somebody? You know, a lot of these foundations will have you know, advisors of one mm-hmm. kind or another. And maybe that's the role that someone like you could play. Well, that's, that, that, that's, I'm not like trying to like find myself a job here no, no. but the but but the, but you'd be surprised like how few actually do that or mm, and, and this is just a shame. again my it, this is just my experience mm-hmm. um it, it's really more anecdotal i'm pretty sure that there are fine philanthropic educational organizations out there i've actually i've worked with a few but usually they're more associated with grassroots efforts Mm. Um, or that they're centered around, you know things like booster clubs um i know there was a foundation that was with a public school I worked for. Uh, I was the band director for a public school, and I worked with the, they had a foundation. Mm-hmm. And it was mostly made of an alumni network. So mm-hmm. when it's close to ah. the community okay. um, is, is when I've seen, seen those do the most good. Mm-hmm. But when it's usually, when it's some 
you know, some rich guy out of Silicon Valley wants to give a bunch of Google tablets to a poor elementary school in the middle of Oklahoma. It, it that's not the same thing. Yeah. That's you know, yeah. that, and I know, and and, and I don't, I, I don't think ill of the people that do that, by the way, yeah. because I, their their intentions are good. Yes, uh, they're just misguided, and unfortunately, that Silicon Valley dude or dudette is viewed as more of an educational expert than me. Just because if you look at public opinion yeah. Yeah. and if you look at the way education is viewed, um, and it, but you know, I know this is a little bit of a tangent here, but it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky place to be in for somebody like me because yes, I want to see things get better. I want to see the rich people or the, the people with means uh, contributing to people who are not as fortunate in society. Uh, I, I just, it's it just, it's just a little worrisome sometimes when there's not well advised direction to it. Well, you're, you're pointing up <clears throat> the shadow side or one of the shadow sides of philanthropy, which is that, um, money can be used poorly. I guess that's uh, an irony, yeah. uh, in, um, despite the very best of intentions. Um, and we know this. I mean, we know that money can be used wastefully. We know that, I mean, you know, we know that this is an argument currently in the United States about, you know, government waste and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody... Uh, right, and, that, and that's one of those places where a lot of these philanthropists and these uh, and these business people have made their way into education because, it, like, I will be the first one to say, yes, there is a lot of waste mm-hmm. in education. Mm-hmm. Um, but does that mean, because there is waste in education, does that mean that you cut off the money? Or does it mean you use the money better? And that's where we get into these big divides, you know, the big political divides Correct. That, we're, that we're in, you know, right now. Um, and so, and, and the difference between, obviously, between a government and philanthropy is that a philanthropist has far more control over their money. Uh, than you and I taxpayer do. You could have just stopped at control. <laughs> well, that's true. Control period. You're absolutely because right. Because that, that, those people can buy Congress people. No, I'm just kidding. That's just cynical. Well, yeah, that's, that's just cynical. But, I apologize. But there is no uh, question that wealth uh, always uh, includes power. There mm-hmm. is absolutely no, no question about that. Even if we're talking to come to an earlier point that you made, um, that this philanthropist who this this theoretical philanthropist who is giving to educational institutions is held up as someone who knows more about education than a bona fide uh, educator like you well how did that happen because of the wealth and the power that they have um, and those get media attention that combination always gets media attention and you doing your job getting your phd Spending your life in the library, looking at articles, you know, doing all that research. You know, actually being around school children. (laughs) Being around school children. You know, the day in and the day out, nobody reports on that. You know, you're just just Um, doing your job. Yeah, but but there has been some good works. Like I can can think about uh, recently around the Cleveland area, actually down in Akron, uh, when LeBron James put a whole sure. bunch of movie uh, a whole bunch of money into the Akron public schools to really build it up but what was different about that one which really got my attention 
was how closely he actually worked with the teachers and the people who are actually with the kids every day to determine what they needed the most. And one of the more interesting things that they got um, was bikes to get around, mm-hmm. you know, because none of them had good bikes. So they, they, had, they, they, they worked out this I don't remember if it was like a bike system or they, I, I don't exactly remember what it was, but like that was one of those needs where unless you're actually talking to people in the school and figuring out what needs, what, what they need, mm-hmm. as opposed to what you think they need, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's that gap. And I'm wondering where that awareness comes from. Well, it's and it's the, probably because he graduated from that program. That, that might have something to do with or it. Or LeBron it did. LeBron James did, yeah. Yep. I mean, it might also have to do with the direction, basically, of information flow. Mm-hmm. Whether information flow is top-down or whether it's bottom-up. And the most successful programs tend to be the ones where the information flow starts bottom-up. It bubbles up so that the people who have the resources, i.e. dollars, um, now have a data set with which to work rather than simply a theoretical framework. And that's, I think, where we often go awry in situations that you're describing where philanthropy goes off the rail is that those situations, there's a theoretical framework about what the school might need or what do we want education to be and, you know, all these kinds of, you know, big philosophical questions, but there's no data set. You know, we don't actually know why those things aren't happening. Well, you got to go out and you got to sit in classrooms. You got to talk to teachers. You got to talk to students. You got to talk to aides. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I, I um, dean uh, an academic program for our group of churches, our association. I also pastor a local church, and I also teach courses from time to time. And I am deliberate about both of those latter two so that the first one stays informed. It's like an administrator. I mean, you're an educator. Um, you know perfectly well that one of the most annoying things for a professor is for an administrator in a department to lose touch with what's actually happening in the department. And they start trying to give you policies and start, start you know, making changes and all this kind of stuff that make no sense. And they're not listening. They've lost touch. They're not talking to students anymore. They're not in a classroom anymore. Um, they're not going out for beers with their colleagues anymore. You know, that kind of stuff. That out of touchness is a perennial problem and money cannot fix that money will not fix that and that's where we get into the whole throwing money at a problem mm-hmm. that's that's what we're talking about right and that's almost what Amos was talking about too because they they have been in this little bubble this rich person's bubble for so long they can't even it doesn't even occur to them that somebody's having a separate experience you know there you know there's you know a little bit of that in the timothy as well i think that i I like that word haughty Mm -hmm. you know but you know it even says in uh, verse uh, 18 of this they are to do good to be rich in good works generous and ready to share absolutely and that idea of sharing i mean this is like almost going back to sesame street is you you observe what you don't just assume that everybody wants what you think that they want. It's more like, you know, if you ask if they want something first, you know, if you're eating a peanut butter, a peanut butter candy bar and you offer it to a friend and your friend's like, Oh no, thank you. I'm allergic to peanuts. You, you don't keep trying to share it with them. Right. 
you know, but then that's somehow that's sometimes why I feel like with a lot of these uh, like these these uh, philanthropic uh, sorry philanthropic businessmen with uh, business people with education. That's what I feel like they're doing sometimes, where it's just like, look, no, just handing a kid a Google tablet or an, or an iPad is not going to fix education. Yeah. And, and, you know, and you and I both know that there and are I'm other, grossly oversimplifying yeah, and too. We know so. that there are other factors involved, you know, who's manufacturing the tablets and for whom and who's, you know, investing in companies, all that kind of stuff. Let's not go down that road. Um, we've got plenty of examples of government uh, programs historically that turned out to be totally wasteful because of cultural imperialism. You know, the, the wealthy people in the United States are, Europe thought that the people in Africa or uh, um, South Asia or other places where there was actual want, not just perceived want, that um, we could simply export, um, say, our diet without realizing, no, you can't do that. You know, folks, you know, they uh, in, in certain cultures can't eat certain foods, you know, because evolutionarily. You know, they're they're just intolerant to those yeah. those kinds and, of and things. Yeah, same thing culturally. Like I've been to yeah. I've been to China. There's not cheese anywhere in that country. Right. So you can't just you know drop well, a bunch yeah, of exactly. government cheese off in uh, Beijing and expect yeah, it to and, do and, anything. And, and we saw this, you know, after the Second World War, when we were dropping food packages in in, in areas where people had been starving, and the people got sick uh, because they they couldn't just simply start eating chocolate mm-hmm. bars. Uh, and this rich food, after so many years, their bodies couldn't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, so there is such a thing. You know, there's, there's got to be. You know, the philanthropy always has to be enlightened, mm-hmm. and the use of money uh, and the use of power has to be enlightened. And there are plenty of ways to get enlightened, and that's actually going to lead us into yep. uh, Luke. Yep. Because there are, because there, yes, there is absolutely misguided altruism. And that, but that's not what we're really talking about here. These are people who have a reason. They are trying. They they are doing what they feel is best. Mm-hmm. And the and the the initial you know thesis statement of what they're doing uh, is I actually will agree with. Yes, I want to make the, I would want to make things better for you know school children too. Mm-hmm. Everything after that's all kind of messed up. But at least we kind of have a similar value there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but when we move into Luke, this is actual idleness. This is... Well, it's more than idleness. He's not... You know, this is a... You better set this up. All right. Uh, so in, in Luke, we have Jesus telling a parable about a, uh, a rich man and Lazarus, not the one that was brought back, um, uh, which is a resuscitation, correct? Correct. It's a resuscitation, not a resurrection. Correct. Uh, which is a very important semantic thing that Gene would like to make. Otherwise, um, I get kicked out of his house. So um, <laughs> we're not going to dwell on that. He, he, made, he made that uh, very clear earlier uh, yeah. off mic. Um, and so uh, basically, they both die, uh, and Lazarus, the poor man, uh, was very much welcomed into uh, uh, paradise. Paradise, uh, but the rich man wasn't. And not only is he not welcomed in paradise, he's in Hades. Yes, interesting uh, he, he, place of Hades, but it is a parable that Jesus is telling here. Right, right. It's a, it's a parable. Um, you want to go ahead? No, you can finish it up. Well, and and um, so now, so set this add a little more detail to it. Um, the Lazarus has been outside the gates of the rich man's house for a long time, um, sick, 
poor, needy, so sick, so poor, so needy, that he can't even keep the dogs away from licking his sores. Um, and in that society, um, dogs were not pets. So this is not a good thing. Um, and uh, he, it says, Lazarus would have been happy to eat even the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And the rich man didn't even provide, uh, you know, his, his rejects um, for Lazarus. So when they both die, their uh, fates, their eternal fates, are uh, determined by the lives that they have lived. And it's important, Ben, in the story to see that what we're talking about is not the accidental slip-up. This is not um, somebody who... Uh, you know, makes an occasional mistake or commits an occasional sin, which is true of all of us. This is a lifestyle that is being judged. It is a, it, it's a, you know, habitual behavior. And in the rich man's case, that it's being judged. It's being, <coughs> it's being condemned. It's, it's not simply being judged and found wanting. It's actually being condemned, and that's why he's in Hades. Um. He's being tormented, and the the, the and, and Lazarus is now finding comfort for the, uh, to replace the torment that he experienced on Earth because of his uh, extreme poverty. And he, the uh, rich man who is who is suffering, he wants Lazarus, uh, who is now it says in the bosom of Father Abraham, to come and help him and relieve some of his suffering and. Uh, Abraham says, no, sorry, can't do it. There's this inseparable gulf between us. Uh, and so the um, rich man says, well, I've got five brothers. They're still alive. So send Lazarus to warn them. And Abraham says, nope, they've got Moses and the prophets. And if they're not going to listen to them, they're not going to listen to Lazarus. And the guy tries again. He says, ah, but if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll listen. And Abraham, again, representing Jesus' view, says, nope, if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophet, even, prophets, even if somebody comes back from the dead. And that sounds all very much like, the, like a Christmas carol to me, where you know Scrooge is visited by three ghosts and he changes his uh, miserly ways and suddenly, you know, what, who is it? Uh, What's the main character's name? Uh, uh, Cratchit. Cratchit, yeah. yeah. So like Cratchit gets the day off and Tiny Tim gets his like lung or whatever he was waiting on. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. I know, I know he was sick. Right. Um, but, right. Uh, but, there, but all of these things happen. But that, but that's, but that, even that, as, as I think about like the deeper meaning of that, one of the reasons that Scrooge made that change is because he realized like how miserable he would have been with, you know, like actually not miserable because he, he'd be dead, but nobody would go to his funeral, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he'd die alone mm -hmm. with all of his money that he can't take with him. And, and which is not coming to his funeral. Correct. Right. Um, and, he gets you know. A, he'd get a hell of a headstone, but you know, like that might be about it. If, if he provided that for himself. Uh, yeah, you know, ahead of time, and in some ways, Ben, you've actually kind of put your finger on something that's related to the Amos passage, which is, and it's also related to the First Timothy reading as well, and also to the to the um, Luke reading, and that is that inwardly directed wealth 
or self-directed wealth, that's a better way to put it, self-directed wealth, has a profoundly isolating quality. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see in the Scrooge, um, you know, that he's, he fears or he, he, he pretty much knows. And it's a realistic fear. This is not an irrational fear on his part. Um, the only way that he would get people to show up at his funeral is if he had paid mourners. Um, by the way, that does happen in parts of the world, even to this day. That they're, yeah, they're, that's a different cultural thing, though. It's, you know, a, it's, a, I, it's a cultural thing. That's yeah, right. Yeah, um, or, you know, the pharaohs were buried with their top advisors. Like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of yeah. yeah. Um, but um, so he and he doesn't want that. So Scrooge, you know, has a conscience, um, and a, and that that conscience comes to his rescue before it's too late. And that's where Dickens' story right. ends. Which is different for Luke. It's very different the, from, from this. The, the Luke passage. Because right. the rich man who's not even named in this, Correct. mind you, um, it, like that's not what happened. He's already dead. He's Correct. not it's, going it's, back. It's all, it's all over for both of these guys. But even here, like even that last line um, is like, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if you're not seeing the stuff that's like the, out here, like giving you information, like, hey, exactly. maybe your life isn't so great. Right. Because of the way you're acting. Right. Um, neither will they be convinced if somebody raises from the dead. That's that, that, that's right. Uh, yeah. What would it What would it take for somebody like of like Im, like immense wealth who doesn't care? Mm. Like, what would it take to get them to care? We we don't have an answer for that. And right. This, and and this parable does not give you an answer for it's that. It's more of a rhetorical question. Yeah. It's 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 more of a rhetorical question. But um, the the parable's point is that the stuff that theoretically it would take is already out there and it's been out there. You know, it's, it's in that phrase, Moses and the prophets. There are plenty of uh, ways for any person in that tradition to know what to do when they are blessed with uh, prosperity, mm -hmm. when they're blessed with wealth. And there are lots of people in the Bible who are wealthy. Abraham is wealthy. Um, you know, look what happens to Joseph when he goes down to Egypt. Uh, Jacob becomes wealthy, you know, becomes Israel, you know, the, the mm -hmm. founder of the, the eponymous ancestor of the, of the 12 tribes. J Job, you know, look at Job. Yeah, Job was very Job, wealthy. Job, Job starts wealthy, and at the end of the book, he ends wealthy. You know, he goes through hell, you know, in the middle. But, uh, and, and interestingly enough, and I don't, again, I don't want to get lost in Job, uh, but that's the tradition sort of critiquing itself. Um, so there are plenty of examples out there, and if they don't get through, if the person uh, steadfastly ignores those, you can't blame those on the tradition. You can't say that, um, oh, the tradition wasn't effective. The, you know, there's a saying, you know, God, even God can't save us from ourselves, and if you are so literally hell-bent on uh, living only for yourself, um, love can't rescue you from that. And that's, that's what we believe God is, is love. And love won't force you. And that's the thing that, you know, when people say, um, you know, why does God let this happen? Why does God let that happen? Why there's so many rotten things in the world and that kind of stuff? Well, it's simply because of love. And love doesn't force you know, bad people to behave nicely. Um, love presents uh, an attractive alternative. And if those people decide that they don't want that alternative, that's their choice. Right. And that choice is, is, 
to continue the way that you've always done things is also sometimes, because this is, reminds me of uh, an issue I've been kind of turning over my head for a little bit, which is, um, you know, how do you invoke like a change in caring about something? Uh, so like in, in, in the context of football, this is going to, this is going to sound a little weird at first. <laughs> so football um, is, is a dangerous sport. I don't understand how any parent would let their child whose brain is still developing play football. And, you know, with, you know, with all these like CTE and uh, brain damage reports coming out for these like lifetimes or like, you know, you get in one bad play in high school and you're limping the rest of your life. Like there's all of these risks involved with it. When as a society, are we going to do away with it? And the question is, I have no idea because I'll tell you what, I'm still a big football fan. I still watch my Chicago Bears. Um, I'm watching the Chicago Browns. I watch college football. I, you know, I teach, you know, students, you know, how to teach marching band for high school football games. And and, and, it, and it really teases at this idea of like, okay, where do you, where, where does the change need to happen? Because the arguments against football are so much stronger than the arguments for football. Mm -hmm. I recognize that. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, there's a part of me that hasn't made that click, that switch over where I can say, I'm going to, and, and I think it's partly cultural yeah, is part really where it goes, where it really boils down to, as you, as you called it, tradition earlier as well. So how do you change? And, and, you know, you know, and this is what they're saying at the end of Luke here. If, if somebody raising from the dead isn't going to change that mindset of that idle rich person, then nothing will. And, it, and is that just something, and again, I'm just to, you know, make the rhetorical question. And now is that just something we have to deal with as humans? Uh, boy, that's a, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't need yeah, to answer it. Yeah. We don't need to answer that because again, I have yeah. been, I, I like, I, I had a conversation with somebody at a conference about this, uh, somebody from Texas, uh, we were talking about this, like, and I, I've been turning it over my head for a week and a half and I'm just like, I have no idea. Cause it's, it's also like, uh, what I, I sometimes think about the vegetarian argument too, is the same thing. Like the, the, the arguments for vegetarianism are so much better than the ones against it and the ones for, uh, you know, pro eating meat aside mm -hmm. from, yeah, I like it. Well, and, and there, you just put your finger on it. Um, one of the, and maybe this is where we can wrap things up. One of the problems with good and evil and thinking of them in binary terms like that um, is that it leads us to think oh. that they are completely different when in fact that is not the reality. Um, each of them has elements of the other embedded in it. And um, what makes so quote unquote evil attractive is that there is something in there, in fact, in many cases, lots of things in there that are actually quite good. Let's take the example of the football game. You know, mm -hmm. I, I grew up you know, in a small town in southern Indiana where football was, was just, you know, Friday night was just it. Yeah. I mean, this was a big civic event, and, um, and it had to do with, it has to do, and why you love your bears and, Cubs? No, Bears. Bear, Cubs are Cubs are baseball gene. Uh, that's what I thought. Uh, who's the uh, baseball's still good? Uh, yeah, Browns. Browns. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> so and baseball too. But anyway, but I can still remember, and this is now fifty, you know, forty odd years ago. 
the excitement, the drama, the theater, theater, that's a better word, the theater of a football game, a small town football game (laughs) uh, with the marching band, the uniforms, the skill, the uh, sense of hope. I don't think people realize how hopeful sports fans are. You live I mean, in Cleveland, dude. <laughs> you would think after all these years, I would realize that by now. <laughs> but you got—you you know, if you're a sports fan, you have to live in hope, and hope is tremendously powerful. Uh, it is, you know, probably the most one of the most powerful urges, impulses that human beings have. And sports bring that out because it's a contest and the outcome of which isn't known necessarily ahead of time. And that's one of the reasons why rigged games are so repulsive to true sports fans. That's why we get so outraged when we find out that that people have been cheating or something like that. Because it destroys that. It undermines that hope and that open-endedness. So I I think, Ben, all this is to say that, you know, and the the pretty girls with the pom-poms and the athletic boys. and It's a culture. Right. And within that culture, however, you've got to recognize all the stuff that's good and attractive and worthy. I mean, come on. Excuse me. Um, Yes, there are risks if you uh, work uh, a football team in August, these boys or or men past a a point that is safe. Yes, absolutely. There's nothing there's nothing commendable about that. But the idea of of a person pushing himself to be better than he was before by lifting weights by <clears throat> excuse me by um, by practicing um, agility drills by you know the, the, it goes all the way back to ancient Greece and the you know the idea of the <clears throat> sorry I'm, I'm, I think I'm getting what nah, nah, you're good <clears throat> go ahead but, you, but you're referring more <clears throat> to just the idea of it is it is a craft it is a discipline there there's all these other you're, and, and, and you're right you're right and it's good. But at what point, but like, I think what they figured out, like the risk for that is because like, if you want to work on your agility and your strength, you know, there's there basketball, other, there's there other, other sports. There are other ways to do it. Right. So, but that, but, but I guess that, that almost brings us back to the point of like, at what point does it change? Uh, or what, at what point does, does it change in the mind of the individual to change? Sorry. At what point does the little switch go off in somebody's brain to make them uh, do something different, that, that, and, that and, one and that's the we'll and that's probably, the key question. We'll probably have to save that one for another conversation. Because yeah, that's that's an I entire there, episode. I, I think there are mul- there are multiple answers to that. So yeah. let's save that for. Another yeah, we're gonna say that, but I think it's a yeah. good way to end. Um, so thank you again for listening. Uh, hopefully, we didn't ramble on a little bit too much. Hopefully, you took something away, and hopefully, we can all be a little bit nicer to each other uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, good to talk to you again, Gene. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Ben. All right, everybody, have a great week. Thank you.